Hi guys, I am very excited to welcome you to the very first episode of Unfiltered with myself, Mia Findlay. For those of you who have been following over on my YouTube channel or Instagram page over the last few years, you'll know that this isn't my first foray into podcasting. There was once a podcast called The Skinny with Mia Findlay, and you might have noticed an increase in sound quality, aka the budget, but I'm very excited to be back on this format. I love what I do over on YouTube and Instagram, obviously talking more about eating disorder recovery and body image, given I recovered from anorexia six years ago and now work as an eating disorder recovery coach and advocate and an ambassador to Australia's leading eating disorder charity, the Butterfly Foundation. And we will certainly still be delving into those topics on the podcast, but there's a whole lot of other things that I think are really important to our community. Topics that we want to get into, lighthearted, things that are slightly more serious, like today's podcast. And I'm really keen to find and interview and introduce you guys to cool people doing really cool stuff out in the world. So I hope that you will stick around and subscribe. Give me a review over on iTunes if you'd like to. Today's podcast is about the recent passing of my father. My sister and I moved over to the United States two months ago to come and care for him in the final stages of his life, battling terminal prostate cancer. Obviously, the huge change of uprooting our lives and coming over here was pretty intense in and of itself. And we were actually going to do a podcast before he passed away dedicated to that topic alone. But he did decline very, very quickly recently. And sadly, we lost him last Friday. And I just want to put out a content and trigger warning on this episode because the reason why we still wanted to make this episode is because we witnessed something fairly upsetting in the final 24 hours of our father's life, which has really prompted us to talk about a topic that I think needs to be discussed and is actually politically being widely discussed and particularly in our home state of New South Wales, and that is end of life rights. So if that's something that you might find upsetting or it's something that isn't healthy for you to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode. We will be going into some detail about the pain that he experienced and what we witnessed. It's not a completely dark and depressing episode. That's the funny thing about grief. It's very up and down where there is crying. There is also laughter and then usually more crying, but it has been an incredibly difficult two months and I think it was important for us to come and share really openly and honestly about what this process can be like, what losing somebody is like, what taking care of somebody in the final stages of cancer is like. And I know that because with all the support that my community has given me, the support I've appreciated the most is the really honest responses I've had from people who have also walked this path and had this experience. And I hope that we can provide a little bit of insight or comfort to you guys as well. Uh, We ran into a woman completely coincidentally the other night after we went out for dinner to celebrate dad's life, who's just about to lose a parent to cancer. Absolute coincidence. We met them in a car park, don't know them at all. And even the little bit of advice that my sister and I could give her, especially in telling her that she will survive this, that it is painful and heartbreaking and it sucks but that you have a reservoir of resilience and strength in you that you won't even know you have until you are tested. 
and losing our dad is certainly a big test for us uh, in that sense. So my sister's going to be joining me today for the very first episode of Unfiltered and she has been a wonderful support to me and I hope I've been the same to her. Uh, So I'm very, very happy to be welcoming her to the podcast and to be back chatting to you guys today. Guys, I'm really proud to welcome to the very first episode of the new podcast, my sister Sarah, who has just gone through an incredibly tough two months with me and is here to talk today about our dad and our experience of losing our dad really recently. So Sarah, I'm so happy to have you here. Sad to be talking about what we're talking about, but proud that you're joining me and so grateful. Hi. If our listeners had to know three things about you yep. before we get into the heavy stuff today. Mm-hmm. What would be three essential things for them to know? Well, um, hello, Leslie. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little nervous. I'm not very used to being... Um... You're not used to having a microphone an inch away from your face? No, I'm not. It's not really a thing I've ever done before. <laughs> um, so three things about me. Uh, I have three cats because I'm a crazy cat lady. Ditto. Yeah. Well, you don't have three cats, but you are a crazy cat lady. Give me time. (laughs) I am somewhat heavily tattooed. I mean, I don't really let people know that. I cover them up when I'm at work and things like that. But um, I love tattoos. tattoos. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And um, I suppose I'm in a relationship with a wonderful man. Yes. We're married. We've been together for, yeah, Max. um, We've been together for eight years. And um, I love him dearly. And probably the fourth thing to know about you just for today is that you have come down with something in your chest that yes. may cause you to cough. Yes. I'm very sorry if I sound a little raspy because I have some kind of throat problem, a chest infection. I don't know. What a wonder that after two months of just the heaven and, you know, non-stress we've been through that you might come down with some kind I of know. physical illness. I really do think that my immune system is taking me through it at the moment just based <laughs> on the stress I've been in. Yeah. So, I'm yeah. I'm surprised we didn't end up with something more serious weeks ago. Yeah. No, I am I think I'll be okay, though. Yeah. I just think I need to go and get myself some Vicks and then I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> What a plug for Vix. Yep. Uh, also, hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> not spawning. <laughs> so, Sarah, obviously we lost dad yep. a week ago today. Yeah. And I thought it was really important for us to share what we've been through after his passing and before his passing. In fact, we we're going to record a podcast talking about caring for him yeah. before he passed because he did decline very quickly. He did, yes. Far quicker than we had anticipated. Absolutely. Mm. He was more aware than we were. I he think was... so. I just don't think he wanted to share the information. No, that was a running theme uh, <laughs> during the last two and a half years. But just so people can get a feel for our dad, what is your favourite memory of him? I have many favourite memories. Um, it's hard to choose from them all because my dad was amazing our dad was amazing I I have so many I think one of the be- one of the best memories I have of him or most fond memories I have is the time we spent in our swimming pool when I was little um, and he often entertained me in the pool quite a bit with um, hoops he'd made me jump through hoops which my mother didn't like very much like a seal because she think thought that he was training me like a seal <laughs> 
Um, and I just, I just thought he was the best. Like he used to get in there and we'd play and he'd throw me up in the air into the water. And, you know, he was just a really fun dad who spent, like spending time with me mm. and enjoyed my company even from the time I was little. Yeah. I think that's similar for me. My favorite memory of dad is a collection of memories, which is when we used to go bushwalking. Mm -hmm. Dad didn't have very much money when we were young yeah. and then throughout most periods of the, the many years that followed but he was a very creative dad and he really loved time with us yes you know, he, was he was always coming up with ways to entertain us that didn't cost a lot of money mm. like suggesting that we make a town out of paper mm -hmm. one time when we were kids mm -hmm. we spent all day on a Saturday that we were with him um, just making a town out of paper constructing yeah. little buildings and cars and people and you know that kind of stuff is the stuff that dad would come up with because he was really creative and would be able to do it on a budget yeah and he was just so he was so present which yes. I think you know even in the last week I've processed that so much more how special that is that you know especially with people out in my platform mm -hmm. on my community pages like YouTube and Instagram people saying you know you really you are lucky that you had the dad that you had yeah and I really feel that you know I'm trying to find the spaces in the gratitude that I have at the moment that yes I lost him at 31 mm -hmm. but that I had such an incredible relationship and friendship with him yeah so that's probably my favorite memory or thing about dad was that he made it okay for me to be me I am a bit of a weirdo I am a bit eccentric <laughs> I am ditto <laughs> it's genetic <laughs> but yeah just that he was so passionate about the world and nature and the universe and that he made it okay for me to be like that as well and yeah. made it cool when we were younger and then interesting and amazing when we were yeah. older. I think other memories I really enjoy about dad is the ones where he would read to us a lot. He loved books. We often got books for Christmas and birthdays. And I mean, as I got older, I complained about that. But as, <laughs> as a child, <laughs> as a child, I loved it because I knew that we could spend time reading these books together. Yeah, all those books like Fish Out of Water and what were some other ones that we used to always, The Diggingest Dog. Mm -hmm. Like I'll never, ever, ever forget. We he, would read those until they were yeah. basically falling apart. There was a book he read to me when I was very little called The Elephant and the Baby. And it's a story oh, yeah. about the ba this baby that goes on an adventure with an elephant. And it's just very weird. But yeah. it was, I loved that book. And he, it was the longest book that we had. That was the biggest book that we had in the bookcase at the time and it, he would spend time reading that to me yeah so there's lots of books we read and then as we got older he read books to us like Matilda mm -hmm. and the BFG by Roald Dahl and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yes all the Roald Dahl all books. the Roald Dahl books he loved those um and because they were all about being kind mm -hmm. and curious yeah and being a good person and that's what dad was he was so curious but so good yep. to people you never saw him be rude to wait staff or anybody no he was, he was very kind so and kind and courteous to people another book other books he used to read um dad loved oscar wilde books mm -hmm. um he used to read a story from oscar wilde which some are quite disturbing mm -hmm. and other On things reflection. yeah other other things he used to encourage were mo movies that mm -hmm. were not necessary well actually no some of the movies that i watched when i was a child that he wanted me to watch mm -hmm. were, um, you know, the classic 80s um, movies like Never Ending Story and The Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, Princess Bride. He got those movies 
out for me. He, he rented them out for me because I was stuck in a bit of a rut at age four when I just wanted to watch Muppet movies and he was sick of the Muppets. So he was like, okay, well, how can I get her interested in something a little bit different or, you know, creative? And so he used to rent those movies for me and I never watched Muppets again. Yeah, well, he went a little further on that end of the spectrum with me on the education via film <laughs> when he got me to watch The Deer Hunter at age Eight. Yes, he was always very um, lenient. Is that the word I'm yeah, looking for? Yeah, lenient. Yeah, he he didn't. He, yeah, he he didn't really think about how old we were in some instances. <laughs> um, tu Wong Fu was another movie he used to. He took us yeah, to see the Birdcage. The Birdcage. He was very LGBTQIA friendly. Yes, and very. It was amazing. We would go and see those movies at say the ages seven, eight, and you would have been eleven, twelve, and then afterwards he would take the time to sit. You know, we'd leave the movie, the the cinema, and we'd sit in the car, and he'd ask, "So, what did you think of that? And what did you think of those people and how they were treated?" And he would take the time to make it into a lesson, but it didn't feel like a lesson. It just felt like you know, popcorn and fantails at the movies, but he was always imparting (laughs) wisdom and it was always about being kind and good and decent. Yeah. And I think that just came naturally to him because every time I talked about it with him when I was older, he was like, oh, did I? Oh, I didn't even, it wasn't even intentional. You know, dad was just unintentionally the smartest, best person ever. Yes, he was. He really was. was So proud of him Mm -hmm. and having him as a dad and he still is our dad. Yeah. So... Dad was diagnosed two and a half years ago, or a little over two and a half years ago now. How has that affected your life in the last two and a half years? How do you feel like you've processed that idea that, you know, from early on we knew it had metastasized, it had gone to his bone, that it was yeah. terminal? How has that shown up in your day-to-day life? I had a bit of a extreme reaction, I think, when he was diagnosed. Um, I panicked I really panicked because I just he lived he lived 10,000 miles away from me firstly and secondly uh dad has been the person in my life that I could always fall back on that was dad for me he was just a hundred percent non-judgmental unconditional love constantly um so yeah I I panicked at first I came over to see him I spent a couple of months here helping him navigate um the treatment process which didn't go so well because he was actually allergic to chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So he couldn't take that path, um, which was a bit upsetting um, because he probably would still have been with us a little longer. But, you know, that's how it goes, I guess. You can't force it. If someone's allergic, you can't, you know, force them to take a treatment that they're going to react to and make them sicker. Or kill them, Or kill them. Well, yeah, anaphylactic shock is not funny. Um, So... After coming back home, how it affected me, I guess I was in a little bit of denial and maybe that's because dad was so good at protecting the people around him by, um, I guess, not going into the full truth of what the situation is. Um, So for the last two and a half years, even though in the back of my mind, I always knew that this was more serious than he was making it out to be. I kind of entertained that it was going to be okay mm. um, because of dad and his attitude towards his diagnosis and um, how, you know, he was coping with it going into the future. He really believed that he would not beat it because it was like he couldn't, it was, it had already spread too, too much, but 
we thought that maybe he might outlive it because he was already in his 70s and we thought maybe he might you know be able to treat get treatment to push him into old age Mm. um and so that was sort of my denial i guess was that i just thought oh well he'll just die of old age he won't die of cancer the cancer won't get him but at the same time as i said in the back of my mind i kind of knew that it was more serious than that and i my life kind of went on pause. I didn't really make a lot of firm plans. Um, haven't had children yet. I'm 35. And, you know, a few years ago, my husband and I were planning on starting a family. And um, that kind of, it wasn't something we really talked about. It just sort of automatically just went on hold. Um, and I haven't really made any major life decisions because I knew sort of in the back of my mind that something might happen where dad would need me. Um, and he wouldn't be coming home for that. We'd have to come here. Mm which is what's happened. <laughs> Correct. So yeah. I think for me, I knew how serious it was, but I think that you lean into the positive, yeah. which is you hear so many stories about people who, you know, we have a neighbor across the road from where mum lives on the South coast, whose father has had essentially what dad had and has had it for seven years, has exceeded yeah. the life expectancy And you hear other stories about people who have exceeded the life expectancy or are doing really well on treatment or there's this new thing that's being trialed. Yeah, exactly. You lean into that and you you look for that. And I think dad was the same. I think as we know about dad, he was the eternal optimist. He could have a drip of water left in a glass and say he, you know, had enough water for a week. You know, Mm -hmm. he would see the best in everything and everyone, which is wonderful. But when you've got a parent who's, on the other side of the world whose daily health you can't monitor Mm -hmm. we were very much going on the information that we were getting from him yes so until i got here because in january i was speaking to him i was in lord howe island on holiday i say in inverted commas because they now have internet over there so i worked the whole time (laughs) and i was talking to him on skype and it was actually the time that i started to record our skype conversations because i just had this odd instinct when he told me that something had suddenly changed his PSA levels which just for people who aren't aware PSA levels in somebody who has prostate cancer basically determines whether or not their prostate is uh, generating hormones which the cancer would then feed off so for the first time in a long time his PSA had gone up it had been incredibly low since they put him on his first round of treatment and it wasn't anything major, but it was enough that I went, I need to get over there. Yep. And I booked a ticket over for April. And in the days before I arrived, he had hit his first massive decline. He had yeah. gone into hospital, which just to give you an indicator of how information was withheld, I didn't know that until he picked up a Skype call when I was in San Francisco from a hospital bed. And that's mm-hmm. not the last time he did that, that I would find out he was in hospital because, you know, drugged up out of his mind on Dilaudid or whatever, yep. he would answer a call in a hospital gown in a hospital bed. So I didn't know that it was that bad until I got here and mm-hmm. saw him and his physical state was terrible. Yep. He barely walked. He was in an enormous amount of pain. They were not managing his pain because he was also terrible at reporting pain. I know it sounds like we're criticizing dad a lot, but it's all out of total love because he was just his own worst advocate. He never wanted to complain. He never wanted to make anybody worry. Um, and we wish he'd made us worry just a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he was in an awful lot of pain in April 
and I saw that decline. And like you just said, that's the perfect phrase for it. My life just went on pause. Mm -hmm. I went back to Australia. I would spend time with friends. I would do work and I just wasn't a hundred percent there. Part of me was always here. And it's like, you suddenly are on this clock and that's how I've tried to describe it to people. When people have said, but don't you feel so lucky that you know? Don't you feel so lucky that you get to spend the time and say all the things and have that intentional time with him? And it is absolutely true. If I had to make a choice between our dad who traveled like 70% of the year just going down in the plane or having this protracted illness where we knew that we had all this time with him, of course I would pick the time and yeah. knowing everything that we know and and saying everything that we have to say. But knowing that somebody is going to die messes you up in a completely different way. Absolutely. Because I think as animals, we're just really not supposed to know that we have a, for want of a better phrase, deadline. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when you know that somebody's going to die, it's like you have a bomb in your house that's got a timer and you're just waiting for it to go off. And no one tells you how much time is on that clock. No, I know. So you're just waiting. And And, and to think as well, you know, when you are in that situation – there is no other outcome other than someone is going to die. Yes. And every solution that you try to come up with, I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but I mean, just trying to understand, I guess, how that those final weeks are is very hard for a family to, mm-hmm. to come to terms with. So people do start to act out people start to try to come up with solutions distract try to themselves. distract themselves and that can be a stressful time it can be upsetting to everyone involved I think that we definitely fell into that and as well as other people in dad's life and um, it caused some tension and I, I mean I think it's very common though I don't think that this is something that you know is isn't yeah it, it, it must be common in families because you are reaching this deadline as you said, for want of a better term, yeah, um, you are going. You are going to lose someone, mm-hmm. and there's no answer to that. There's mm-hmm. nothing that you can do. That's um, right. But but you know, I think that most people will have regrets in the final weeks of someone's life, yeah. regardless of how it goes. Um, because I mean, the whole time we were thinking, are we doing the right thing? Yes. Everything you do, you constantly question, are we doing the right thing for this person? Mm-hmm. Are we making the right choices? Are we you know, are we messing this up? And I think that everyone has those thoughts. Yes. Even when you've got everyone around you saying, oh my gosh, you're amazing. Like you, I, everything you're doing, he's so lucky. And you're like, is he? Because I just feel guilty all the time. All <laughs> the time. Just constant guilt. Yeah. And it's very weird. It's not something that I had anticipated. Um, I really didn't think that I would feel that way. I didn't, I thought that, you know, I was doing all the right things um, in the lead up to coming or in the lead up. It was only four days that I had to make the decision to come to America. But in that time, I thought, okay, I get there and I make the best of it. Mm-hmm. I make the most of it. I make the most of time with dad. But it's very different when you're in it. And especially because dad was so blase <laughs> about it all. I mean, he wasn't and he was. There were times where he'd tear up and everything. But then there were other times when I wanted to have heart to hearts with him. And he'd kind of be like, okay, all oh right. <laughs> I just want to go to sleep now. I've got work to do. <laughs> you know. I think that's absolutely been our experience over the last two months because, you know, like I said, I was here in April. Then he had another setback recently, a couple of months ago. He was Mm -hmm. in hospital for a month. Yeah. I was in Bali and saying to him, do I need to come now? Because I was planning to come back. So in April, I saw the state that he was in. And even though they got his pain management under control and he was doing better, 
he never sort of got back to any level of physical strength that was really, no, you know, was showing huge improvement. And I'd said to him at the time, because I, thanks to my job, I can work anywhere. So I thought, well, what am I doing? You know, I'll come back and I'll spend that time with him at least for three months, you know, the period of time that we can stay before having to leave the country. Mm-hmm. So I said I'd come back in late July. Yep. Uh, and it ended up being much earlier than that because he did. He hit another uh, downhill period where he was in hospital for a month and we both came over very shortly after yeah. that. Mm-hmm. How did you feel coming into that knowing that things had changed so drastically i kind of knew two weeks before because dad had gone into hospital a month before that and well for the whole month that he was in that hospital he hadn't told me what was really going on he had been sort of talking to me about oh i've still got a couple of years left i've still got a year left but then i would call him when he was on pain medication um and he would be very much altered an altered state based on that medication and he would tell me a few months and so it was mixed signals mixed messages didn't know what the hell was going on I was working um you know I work full-time um but and every day I was calling him trying to get information about what was actually happening and he would you know cover it up I'm fine I'll be fine I'll get out soon I'm going to go to a rehab I'm going to get back on track don't you worry um, and this was uh, late June and he was telling me this. So that was only, what, two months ago? Mm-hmm. Um, so I I was in, I was in shock. I was, I, you know, this whole time here I was thinking that he would push through and just continue to, you know, tackle it with the treatments that he was getting. And having been told by him and his doctor, there are so many different treatment options mm-hmm. for prostate cancer these days. You know, there's still things we can try. So it was very confusing. It was just very confusing. I just didn't know what to think. Um, and then one day dad told me that he was going to have a health assessment with his doctor. It was a Friday um, and I said that I wanted to be on the call because I wasn't getting clear information from him. Um, and when I say on the call, I wanted to be in the room on dad's Skype when his doctor came to visit him in the hospital. So Max and I stayed up until 3am because it was, that was the time, um, over here that dad was meeting with his doctor. And that was the first time I'd heard the words palliative care and, um, hospice. And I knew then that we were about to head into the final days of dad's life. Um, I was absolutely devastated. Um, I didn't sleep all night. I mean, it was already 3 a.m. and I just stayed up. And then by the morning, I decided I was going to leave in a few days. Um, I let my work know and I packed up and I came over. Mm. It was very um, for quick. Um, and I kind of felt a bit annoyed at him that he hadn't told me earlier if I if I'd had a better instinct, I probably would have been on a plane a few weeks earlier while he was in hospital mm. because, um, but I'd always, I never wanted to overstep. I never wanted to overstep with dad because he was very independent, fiercely independent. He didn't want anyone fussing over him or telling him to what to do. water. <laughs> yes. Please drink water. Our father, Diet Coke is not water. <laughs> our father had a Diet Coke um, problem. Yeah, he had a problem. It was definitely uh, an addiction. To his credit, he did give up drinking, smoking and drinking coffee all in one go. Yes. Uh, more than 30 years ago. Yes. Yeah. 
So, so Diet Coke was the least of his worries, but just some more water wouldn't have hurt anyone. No. <laughs> Please. Luckily, in his final days, he decided to quit Diet Coke. Yes. So that was at least a victory there, but he still refused to drink water on we, its own. Cordial was our co- compromise. Co- cordial, um, hot chocolate. Yes. Um, and then this weird fizzy lemon drink that yeah. he liked, but he just would not drink water straight. Yeah. He didn't like it yeah. is what he told me. <laughs> I just don't like it. And every time I begged him, yes, boss. <laughs> Dad, don't you think you could use some water? Yes, boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to just jump on a plane without dad say so or, you know, go ahead because I didn't want to intrude on his life, but. I wish I had. I wish I'd actually followed some instincts a week, a few weeks earlier. Well, I think that's the balance is, and even when we've got here, it's trying to respect because nobody knows if somebody said to me, it's going to be two months, then I would have felt more inclined to be more, for want of a better term, pushy with all the things that I thought, you know, needed to be done or whatever. But because you don't know, you don't want to take that person's independence away because at a certain point they will, and as we've seen, they will have zero independence. That's correct. So it's trying to respect that fine line of giving them in a situation where they have zero control, yeah. giving them a sense of as much control as you can possibly give them. That's right. But over time that becomes less and less practical absolutely we saw it with our own eyes that our father who i know a lot of people eulogize and they canonize and they talk up people who've passed away my father was without a doubt the smartest person he was a phd and everything it's he's got the qualifications to back it up but just his absolute pure intelligence intellect passion zest for life curiosity his ability to grasp things that he would talk to me about. And I would just say, dad, I wish I could connect with you on this, but I don't know half the words you're saying. (laughs) When he asked me to edit his PhD, I just said, why? (laughs) I cannot help you. I don't understand half the things you talk about. He was so incredibly intelligent. To see that level of intelligence then reduced to him not even being able to operate his iPad or his laptop Mm -hmm. and be just in three second loops of not even remembering why am I sitting in front of my laptop was incredibly difficult. But in the lead up, there was stuff that, you know, was happening where we could have intervened. But at that point, he was still independent enough that to take that away from him would have felt wrong. And it's the same thing with him saying, I've got a year left. I've got a two. I've got two years left. Sometimes he would even say, "Oh, I've got ten years left." Yeah. And then the next day it would be, "Oh, guys, it's probably only a few weeks, or it's only a couple of months." And then the next day or the next hour, we go back to one or two years, and you kind of sit there and ride out this roller coaster of prognosis that they're coming up with for themselves. Because on one hand, you don't want them to be disappointed by the fact that that's highly unlikely. Yeah. And on the other hand, you don't want to prevent the possibility that they can live for longer if they believe they can live for longer i had the exact same experience i think we both experienced that at the same time with so do you encourage one or do you try to mitigate disappointment Mm -hmm. by allowing them to be a little bit more realistic i think the hard thing for me was when dad would turn to me and ask me what i thought was not having an answer for him Mm -hmm. because i couldn't tell him how long he was going to live 
you know he honestly i think had this optimism from the couple of weeks out of hospital that he would recover and that he would be able to get back on track and get out of hospital oh sorry out of hospice um and i as you said like i don't i didn't want to discourage that because if if it meant that we had him for a little longer um and that he would maybe bounce back a bit then i couldn't couldn't dissuade that but it was more as well not i couldn't lie to him either mm-hmm. you know i couldn't say yeah dad i think you're definitely going to recover because i could see where he was mm-hmm. he couldn't get up and down stairs mm-hmm. um there was some personal care things that he couldn't take care of anymore that we had to help him with mm-hmm. and i just kind of had a feeling that once you get to that level it's very hard to come back from that and so i would tell him i didn't know and that didn't help either i don't think because he could see on my face i think i can't lie um and that was hard that was really hard i didn't want to disappoint him i didn't want him to feel like i didn't believe in him or that he could you know he wouldn't be able to do it but it was it was just the matter of how the human body works mm. and i can't i couldn't say that he would or he wouldn't yeah and because his answer would change i would just always say well dad i'll whatever your instinct is i'll go with it yeah which was not me confirming nor denying but the whole time, as you know, I'm almost pathologically practical. Yes. I'm highly emotional, but I do have a, you know, uh, a tendency to go into a very, very, like, focused practicality. Mm-hmm. And I'm quite a realist. And so I would just let him basically say whatever he needed to say. And I, But I knew it wasn't long. Yeah. It wasn't long. You just can't see somebody not just physically deteriorating but they're mentally deteriorating yeah and i was also absolutely googling the hell out of everything that would happen every symptom he had every physical change every mental change and it all basically was leading to the same thing which was these are the final these are the final weeks yes and he did tell us a week or two before he died that he thought it was going to be a week or two and he was right he was correct and even at that point you know i said to him he was locking eyes with me and he said that and it was the first he'd ever said something that short Mm. and that direct he was finally being very direct and i just said well as always dad we're going to follow your instinct but i think you've got a bit longer Mm-hmm. But he knew. He and knew. That's yeah. pretty common, apparently, that people do towards the very end. They do know. They get a feeling. And I think because he had started to become less mobile, um, even when we arrived, he was quite mobile. He was getting up and going for little walks with, with his, his walker. walker and, you know, doing little exercises and things like that. And then as the weeks progressed, that became less and less. Mm-hmm. And when I think he determined that I think he determined that it was going to be the end because his mind had started to not be able to keep up with what he needed to do for work um, and what he just needed to do on a day-to-day to be him yeah um, mentally he wasn't a hundred percent there anymore and that was upsetting to him I think out of everything his mind starting to go mm. was the scariest part yeah back in April when I was here he was almost more upfront about what he was feeling and what he knew was coming. I think that his medical team did a great job of preparing him for the, the reality of like the physical and the mental uh, deterioration that he was going to go through, yeah. especially around that time because it was his first big decline. And he said very 
upfront, you know, if once the pain is out of control or if when it becomes too much, I don't want to be here anymore. But particularly when I can't do what I want to do, because dad being sort of the intellectual titan that he was, he loved his work. I mean, I'm not going to disclose specifically, but he worked for, uh, well, in the area of defense over here in America, running Mm -hmm. leadership programs. He was as many of his he was a consultant. He was a consultant, yes. but as many of his colleagues, past and present, have said, he was a maverick. He was an absolute innovator. He you know, was. he was he was he was so so good at what he did, mm-hmm. and he loved it. I used to say to him, "Dad, when are you going to retire?" And he'd say, "Never." And I thought it was a monetary thing. I was like, oh, "I'm sorry, <laughs> Dad. I'm sorry you can't retire." He was like, "No, I don't want to. If I am not doing what I love, then what will I be doing?" It wasn't work for him. It was. An extension of him into the outside world. Yeah, it was an extension of of him into the outside world and what he could do to change things. That's what he wanted to do. He Mm -hmm. wanted to change the world. He did. I remember when I was a child, he used to say he wanted to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he wrote, and I might read it actually, he wrote a poem for us. I won't read the poem because it is an epic poem. But when we were little, he, and we moved to Melbourne for a couple of years with our mum and our stepfather and dad would come and visit us, but he would also send us, for anyone who knows what a floppy disk is, I'm sending <laughs> you 10,000 points because <laughs> yeah. don't guys don't know what a floppy disk is. I'm not even going to describe We're it. showing it's an, our age. Yes, it's an old piece of technology <laughs> like a USB stick. I'm probably even aging myself by saying USB stick. Yes, it's I would what, say so. It's what a cloud used to do. It stored information. It stored files. And it was a physical. yes. Like, and it looked like a disc, which is why it was called a floppy disc. I don't know why it was called floppy. It wasn't it was pretty, pretty enough. There actually were discs before that that weren't the sturdy yeah, discs. You're older than me. Yes. Thank you so much for And they were floppy discs. They were actually <laughs> like a little bit more floppy oh there you go they were bigger so it wasn't ironic yeah that was in the 80s and early 90s okay so you weren't yeah you were very little to our technology historian Mm. sarah jane finlay (laughs) um so yeah he used to send us stories because that's what we used to do we used to read with him but we'd also make up stories together like we'd lie in bed and we'd you know he'd tell our stories or we'd tell stories he's always invariably much better than ours um, and he wrote this poem called The Littlest Cosmic Cloud, which we promised him we would get published uh, in you know his final days because he always wanted to be published. He did have his PhD published and other things that he'd written, but he was never published for sort of his creative writing. And he was an amazing writer amongst yeah, many other things. He was. But he wrote this introduction to this poem, which I want to read you guys because I think it'll give you another nice sense of dad as a person. So this was the introduction that he wrote to this amazing poem, which hopefully you guys will be able to get your hands on once we publish it at some point. I wrote this story for my daughters, Sarah and Amelia, to help them understand how important it is to respect others and the way they think differently and to be prepared to be different themselves and hold opinions that are not necessarily popular. I particularly resonate with that hope that he had for us, (laughs) (laughs) especially if those opinions are a better fit with our emerging understanding of the universe rather than the politically correct. The story began one night under the blankets with the lights turned out in a cheap motel in South Yarra, Melbourne, which we converted into a palace in our minds. First, we would go shopping for salami, tomatoes, crunchy rolls and Tim Tams. This is going to make me cry. On the way back, we go bookshop crawling and finally choose something each of us liked at one of those great antiquarian bookshops at Dot Turak Road. After a sumptuous repast, we would all invent stories. The littlest cosmic cloud began this way. 
Humans are on the verge of discovering alien life. They are probably here already, but we cannot see them. They live on different scales. They have different ways of seeing the universe. They think differently to us. We humans seem to think we are better than the blades of grass, the trees, the bees, and the other beings with whom we share our planet. Hopefully we will wake up and see the universe through new eyes before it is too late. And although each of us in many ways quite insignificant, we can every one of us make an enormous impact on the universe. Quintessential dad. That's dad. Mm -hmm. Making change, being good. And he wrote that back in like 98 before climate. it was earlier than that. Where was it? 95. Oh, 95 before climate change action was cool. (laughs) (laughs) Back when nobody thought it was a real thing for realsies. This is pre-Al Gore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pre-An Inconvenient Truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, that was dad always wanting to make change, always wanting to... Make the world better. Yeah, but seeing the world for its potential, not because he was like, everything's wrong with the world and I need to come in and save it and change everyone. It was more he just wanted to amplify the best in everyone in every situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was incredibly difficult to see him no longer have that independence and that joy that he got out of work. And and I think, like you said, that was really the turning point for him when we saw him kind of lean more into the inevitability and it was literally from that point it was a week it was yes he figured out that he couldn't work anymore he figured out that he couldn't keep up with everybody else and I think it was almost like he made the decision Mm, I agree yeah I think he did too so what did you notice from that point on I just noticed in the weeks leading up that he was having trouble using his computer. He was having trouble keeping his train of thought. Um, It progressed over the weeks leading up. And then the last week, maybe two weeks of his life, um, he was sleeping a lot more. And um, yeah, just kind of over it. Mm. I think that he'd fought really hard for a really long time, more than he'd let on. Um, He hadn't really... I don't think he'd shared a lot about how much pain he'd been in or, you know, how much he'd been struggling. I think that that's something that he kept to himself quite a lot. And so we didn't see it. And I think that's why we thought he had longer. Mm. Um, I think we thought that once you go into hospice, just so everybody knows, when you're in hospice, doctor visits stop. Yes. Treatment stops. um, Checkups stop. Mm -hmm. So you don't know how long a person has. It's a waiting. It's it's literally a waiting game. There's no more scans to say this is where the tumours are now and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's now moved into organs or bloodstream or anything like that. It's a waiting guess game. You Mm -hmm. just don't know when it's going to be the end. Yeah. It could be months. It could be weeks. And in our case, it was really weeks. And to be clear, by hospice, you can go into a home. You can go into sort of a, you know, more a medical facility. But if you're lucky, I suppose, you know, lucky is a relative term, but dad wanted to stay at home mm-hmm. and we were able to do that for him. We, you know, there were a number of us caring for him. Yeah. Uh, and we were able to, you know, administer his pain medication, etc. But one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast, which I will have covered in the introduction, is that the last 24 hours of our dad's life were not completely painful or uh, traumatic for us. But that there was something which happened just before he died, which has motivated us to try to 
turn his experience into something purposeful because I think most of you would have gleaned from this podcast what the kind of dude our dad was and the things that he loved that we did. You know, mm-hmm. that's what he loved about anytime we were creative or anytime that we got passionate about something. And that's what he used to say about my work. Like he was like, you're changing the world. You found a problem and you're trying to, you know, create a solution. And I think that we were very traumatized by what happened in the last couple of hours of dad's life Yes, and want to do something purposeful with it. Absolutely. So I keep saying absolutely. I say absolutely in every single interview that I do. So don't worry. I feel like Gia Gunn from RuPaul's Dad Race. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Sorry. It's very serious. I wish we could put gifts in uh, uh, podcasts. Mm -hmm. Um, But essentially, and I'm going to try to do this as delicately as I can, but as honestly as I can. And Sarah, I'd encourage you to do the same as we've talked about going into detail I think is essential for people to understand why we're talking about this. Mm -hmm. But dad had a kind of cancer that had metastasized. It had gone into his bone. Bone cancer is extraordinarily painful. Yes. More than, as you said before, I think we even understood with dad because he was not a complainer and he didn't let on or really tell us. But you could see in his eyes, even getting in and out of his hospital bed at home, pulling his legs up to get into bed and his eyes would just go into this intense focused but kind of far away look that he was just focusing so hard on minimizing the pain that he was in yes and it was like that for weeks uh so he in the last week really wasn't moving very much at all he was no longer uh able to have a shower the last time he had a shower he was in extraordinary pain we weren't there for that but Mm. we heard that he was in agony and I had seen him the same day. Um, we didn't often take days off from dad. That That's a horrible way to say it, but we didn't, we were there with him most of the time. Mm-hmm. But on this particular day, we were moving some things um, from his old apartment to the new house that we were trying to get him into mm-hmm. um, that we'd rented. And I came by in the evening um, just to see him and he had, told me how horrendously painful his shower had been and that he just didn't want to move anymore and that he was done and it was he was it was time he was ready to go and I remember just feeling very helpless like I couldn't do anything to help him Um, and he was almost begging me to make sure he didn't go through that kind of pain again I apologized to him you know, and well, I didn't apologize to him. I said, I was so sorry that he was going through what he was going through. And if I could, I would take it away. Um, and he just, you know, made me promise that he didn't have to be in that pain again. Mm. Very, very, very upset. And it had happened hours earlier. Mm. And the fact that he was that upset. Um, and as you said, as we both have said, he's not a complainer. So the fact that he was saying through tears how painful it had been, meant that I think that that was probably the worst agony he had ever been in in his life. Um, And that was very distressing for me because I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd seen him in, like we've, without going into detail, because I do want to respect dad's privacy and dignity because he was very embarrassed about some of the things that, you know, he had lost control of and that we had to help him with. But we'd seen him in, you know, he almost collapsed in the bathroom in my arms trying to get you, well, you were so you know, I don't know how you performed, you know, something that defies physics, but you got a chair behind him in a space where there was no space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that was in 
I'll say a bathroom situation, I suppose, numerous times where things happened that uh, were very embarrassing to him and scary to him. So mm-hmm. we'd seen that, but that wasn't pain related. No. I mean, he was in pain. He was in pain, but it wasn't to the extent that it became in the last week. Yes. So he then, you know, started to become less and less responsive. We had one great day with him the day before that shower when he was in agony where he was, you know, we'd walk into the room and he'd just say, like, he'd been thinking about it. He'd just go, he'd see us walk in. He'd go, I love you guys. You know, just like he'd been thinking about how much, and that was our dad, like he never doubted how much he loved you. He was never never. afraid to express himself. But when I was here in April, just like always, we would hold hands while he cried, while we watched cute rom-com movies, anything with young people falling in love. He was just like, this is the best thing ever. He loved rom-coms. Such a a hopeless romantic, wasn't he? He had so much love in Mm -hmm. him to give people. Um, And... Uh, yeah, so so we hadn't seen that degree of pain from him before. Uh, and he had this great day the Sunday telling us how much he loved us, asking us all dad's philosophical questions like, what's the most exciting time of your life? And if you could do any job today, what would it be? And that's so dad, like, you know, all these big questions and really just wanted to know these things about us, which is just the most beautiful thing of all time. I wish I'd appreciated it more. And as much as I do now. Uh, And then he had that difficult Monday and then he became less and less responsive. He was still able to tell us he loved us. We got all of our brothers on a call together. Our brothers had come over to visit him weeks ago. And, you know, that was great for dad, but it was also great for us. We hadn't seen him in a long time. We've all bonded beautifully since then, which is, you know, a big gift out of a pretty devastating situation. Silver linings. That's that's right. You got to look for them. Mm-hmm. But we got all our brothers on a call because Dad had said, you know, at the very end, I want everyone there. I want to say goodbye to everyone. I promised him I would get my book published because he worked so hard on that book with me. He edited every single version. He put the marketing um, pitch together. And I said, you know, I'll dedicate it to you. Sarah told him that we were going to get this Littlest Cosmic Cloud published. We told him how much we loved him, how proud we were of him, yeah, which we, we'd done. we definitely took the time to do that. For sure. I and mean, I think I, we told him that we loved him about 4,000 times each. He was each. over it. He, he really, so over it. He was just like, okay, guys, I get it. <laughs> I, all right. This, it means nothing now. <laughs> but I'm so grateful to you, Sarah, because you were the one and you were the timing. Your instinct was so right when you said to him, you need to talk to him. You need like this is he's not going to be responsive for much longer. I said that on the Monday and I just knew that he was sick of it and he wanted to go. Yeah. And that he, we were about to go into the final dying stages. Yeah. Yeah. And it was on that day that he kept turning to us and saying, see ya. And then he just turned away and closed his eyes again. <laughs> he was <laughs> just like, I just hope to go now. Yeah, so compassmentous. And he just looked at us and we'd be sitting there holding his hand. We're like, Dad, we love you so much. We're going to miss you every day. And his eyes would open. He'd look at us and he'd just go, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd just crack up laughing. It was like, bugger off. Leave me alone. Like, I'm done. I'm it's done okay. now. I'm yeah. okay. You yeah. don't have to worry about me. And mm-hmm. we told him, you don't have to worry about us. We're going to take care of each other. Like everyone's taking care of each other. He could hear us having dinner down the hall, oddly laughing. That's the other thing, guys. You will go through grief and it will be the biggest roller coaster. You'll think you'll all sit around and stare at the person and cry. And we didn't, you know, we bond, like we finally all came together at the end and we 
you know, would be crying at dinner and then laughing and telling funny stories. And he could hear all of that. And yeah. that was really important because I think that helped him to let go. He could yes. hear everyone was taking care of each other. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's the thing. The What you're saying about what you expect will happen or what, what you expect you'll respond to someone dying or in the final stages of dying to be is completely different to what actually happens. So mm-hmm. I was expecting that I would be absolutely devastated when dad started to lose consciousness. I thought that I would not be able to cope with it. I thought that once he died, I would I would be in bed for a week mm-hmm. and not be able to get up or eat or drink water or sleep properly. Like I really believed that that's what my reaction to his death would be. But it's not like that. It's weird. It's very strange. It just sort of, I mean, it's definitely upsetting and very sad. And I'm, I, in a way I am devastated because I don't have my dad anymore. But at the same stage, I think just because of who he was, um, I know that he wouldn't want me to be absolutely like distraught and yeah. not being able to cope or, yeah. you know, get up in the morning. Mm-hmm. I think that it would be an affront to him. Yeah, he'd be pissed. He would be angry if yeah. we had just been in this, ho- gone into a hole. Mm, if we'd I gone agree. into a hole, because that's not dad. He wouldn't do that. Yeah, that's right. And that's why, you know, it is, <laughs> we are probably putting off talking about what happened that day. But so after he was, you know, more responsive on that Tuesday, so he became less responsive and to, you know, put it, as delicately as possible he was no longer able to even get up and use the commode so he sort of went from using the toilet could no longer get to the toilet then he had a commode in his room which is sort of like a plastic toilet that you empty and then finally because he couldn't get out of bed you know we had to put pads under him and use adult diapers yes uh i'm becoming american apparently for all my australian people out there nappies and he would forget that because he was not compass mentis and he would panic and he'd try to get out of bed to go to the bathroom and he couldn't. He had no strength left and it would have been too painful. He would, yeah, he would forget that he had the pads underneath him though. Yeah. He'd wake up. And, and it was such a cause of anxiety. He was very panicked. Toilet. Yeah. Um, and so I slept next to him the three nights before he passed away because we couldn't leave him in the room alone. Even when Sarah and I would be downstairs chatting in her room, we would put my phone and call Sarah's phone and keep the camera on so we could see him. And a couple of times we had to run upstairs because he was trying to get out of bed. Yeah. Um, and then by the third night, what they call, and this is the term for it, and it sounds awful because it is, you know, awful but the death rattle started which is when you know secretions start to build up in the bottom of the throat they lose their ability to swallow or cough and again google 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 everything time something would change i'd be lying next to him googling and realize that that was probably the last 24 hours is when that mm-hmm. noise starts yeah it is very very confronting they say that it doesn't bother the patient and i might be wrong but i i think because they are able to hear everything the last sense to go is hearing and they may not be as compass, but he was still compass towards the end. He was murmuring back, I love you, and would say, I love you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is all part of the conversation we're leading to, but I think it, it did bother him. Mm-hmm. He was all coughing. Yep, yeah, all the literature says it doesn't. The hospice nurses said it doesn't, but he's my dad, and it bothered him. He was so trying to clear his did. throat exactly. a few times. Maybe not in the last, like, 48 hours, but definitely the de- like 
third day, he'd, he actually had the death rattle for quite a while. It came on and off, but it was yeah. that last night I was sleeping next to him when there was no break. Yes. And then his breathing would stop for periods. And I was like, this is literally, they pin it down to the last 23 hours. I don't know who came up with that number, but it's the last 23 hours apparently. Mm. So it was the last day of his life and... Uh, we changed him a couple of times and then his one of his nurse aides came over and I was in the room with him initially when she said, you know, I'm just going to give him a bath. I was downstairs. Like I didn't bath. know that she was there. Yeah. I'd been in my bedroom um, having a nap with my husband. Yeah. And um, yeah, I didn't know she'd arrived. So she had said, I'm going to need to turn him. And I could see he started to get agitated because he could hear. And I said, do we have to turn him? I said, he's wor- he's anxious about turning. His nurse aide said to me when I said, do we have to turn him? It's making him anxious. He's really worried about pain. She said, you know, he's been on his bum for days and obviously there's been pads under him. And for weeks, dad had had bed sores on his bum that were incredibly sore, incredibly deep, incredibly painful. And I basically said to her, you know, I have to follow your advice, but I know how anxious and terrified he is of being moved and how much pain he will be in and she said and she just looked at me and said we have I have to do it I have to you know Mm. it's sort of better um it's the better of two evils you know it could have become infected um and it would have been worse for him if he'd stayed there for a couple of more days like that and an infection there was no telling how long he would be lying there for and Mm -hmm. he had been at the point where we, we were using pads and diapers for days so you know I, I just loathe to think what that would have felt like so I had to go and get something I cannot remember now probably because I blocked it because I hope at some point I don't remember a lot of any of this I went and left the room and then you came upstairs I came up the stairs um, I didn't realize what was going on because I hadn't been part of the conversation about turning dad and I didn't even know that the nurse aide had arrived but as I neared the top of the stairs I heard a noise coming out of dad that I've never heard in my life mm-hmm. and he was screaming um and you have to also remember he had not spoken to us in two days he had been like unconscious almost in a coma um for two days and no noise coming out of him um other than a few little murmurs um so to hear the noise that he was making was extremely distressing and I immediately ran towards his room and saw that his nurse aide had turned him on his side to clean up pads that were underneath him and to remove his bed sheets because he had been bleeding into the bed sheets um, and there had been oozing and all of that. It's not. It wasn't pretty. This is very graphic. I'm very sorry. It's but be a graphic content warning. And she, I grabbed his back so that because she was just holding him with one hand as he was turned on his side and he was convulsing and screaming and. I, I grabbed his back and I held on to him um, to try to support some of his weight while she changed. I started to try and change all of his padding and clean him and, clean him to be cleaned. and he needed to be cleaned. And then you ran into the room and we both were trying to comfort him and I Holding him up. was rubbing lotion on his back and saying, Dad, it only is going to be a little bit longer. It's just going to be another minute, I promise. And the nurse aide, she had been seeing him for the whole time he'd been at home hospice and he knew her quite well and he'd spent time chatting to her so um you know she but she was brilliant she came in and just 
did it as quickly it as possible. It was incredible. It was her skill at getting not just him changed, the pads changed, him, him cleaned. cleaned, lotion on him. She literally was saying to us, put your hand here, put your hand there, pull this, do that. And she had it as much as it sounds like it went on forever. It felt like it did. It, it did, was less yeah. than two minutes. It was less than two she minutes. She was extraordinary. But he hated her. Yeah. But it was extraordinary. Dad was extremely upset. Very upset. It's hard to explain to people who haven't been through this because they don't understand. I mean, a lot of people out of like Hollywood movies, if someone's dying from cancer, often they'll depict the person dying from cancer as lying in a bed looking very malnourished or very sick and then they'll have them talking right up to the last moment of their life and then and suddenly then they'll yeah they'll just take their last <laughs> breath and that's and it but that's not how people die from cancer not, that is not, not how it works no so dad had not been responsive for two days he could not form words so when we turned him back he you know his his bed had been changed he was cleaned up but he was breathing very very heavily labored breathing to the point where like he was about to hyperventilate because mm-hmm. he couldn't breathe like his body was shutting down on him he couldn't really it didn't work anymore he was trying to communicate with us but he no longer had words so it was just gibberish coming out of his mouth but he was trying to focus on you mm. He was focusing on your eyes. His eyes weren't really focusing. They were glazed over. They he were had very, been... you know, towards the end, their eyes tend to go very cloudy. And everybody has said to us, it wasn't him. He couldn't see you. He wasn't talking to you. And it's all a comforting thing. Like, you know, he wasn't really, and he wasn't all there. No. He's By that time, there's such a calcium buildup in the brain. Don't quote me on that. I'm not a doctor, but that's what I've read. That's what I understand from other people who I've talked to about this. He's not 100% him. He's not 100% compass mentis. But people have said to us, oh, no, he wasn't focusing on you. He was lashing out at something else, probably hallucination. He was talking to me yes. and you saw it. His eyes, as hard as he could fight to look at me, he was looking at me and he wasn't yeah. blinking. And this is someone who hadn't opened their eyes properly for two days. Yes. And he was unable to form words, but the tone couldn't have been clearer. He was begging me. Yes. Absolutely I was there begging me. And I can guarantee you that I saw the exact same thing. When we weren't looking directly at him after we had sort of tried to calm him down and say, Dad, you can be as angry as you want. I'm angry for you. I'm sorry. We did have to do we that. We had to. Once I saw the bed sheets and what she she did the right thing. I yeah. said that to him. I'm so sorry, but she's right, Dad. Mm-hmm. We had to. We couldn't leave you like that. But after that, he was lying there gripping his fists and like yelling like angry frustrated and I said to you guys I said to you and the nurse aide he's trying to tell us something I know him you know I've known him for 35 years Mm -hmm. I know when my dad's angry I know Mm -hmm. when he wasn't angry at us he wasn't he was angry as she came inside to be to be very clear she is a wonderful person she did her job she did what she was meant to do it pissed him off it hurt him but she had no alternative. She didn't. Ethically, she we had to do it. I know it sounds, there might be some people listening saying, I wouldn't have done that. It is not a situation you could understand unless you were there. It's not a choice that anyone should have to make, which is what we're going to get to in a minute. Um, but she did the right thing. And he was essentially very angry at her when she would come into view or he would hear her voice, his tone would change and it would get very, very, very angry. He furrowed his brow at her when Mm -hmm. she came to say to him, John, I'm very sorry I had to do that. 
I didn't mean to hurt you, but we had to get you clean and I'm sorry. And he he snarled at her, mm-hmm. which is not like dad. No. He does not do that to anybody. No. But when he's very You'd upset. You'd slap him in the face and he'd be like, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> but if he's in pain. Can I help you with anything? Yeah, if he's in pain or something like that. Because he, he was angry when she made him have a shower the Monday previous to him dying. So, you know, he was already kind of angry because she'd already caused him to have pain. And yeah. then this final time. So... Yeah. Without going into too much detail, um, we made Dad comfortable mm-hmm. and he passed away within an hour Yes, after that incident. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't there. No. Well, not unfortunately because now we have come to understand that people very often will wait for everyone to leave by the time they pass away and this poor bugger had not been left alone <laughs> Past 72 we hours, had even though we did expressly said, can you please leave me alone? I just want to go now, mm-hmm. <laughs> please. He was over it. He was over it. So we had left very briefly, like I said, like we'd been there overnight. Sarah had been downstairs with Max. I was sleeping next to him. We hadn't left except to have maybe a quick shower and I would go and have a nap for maybe an hour. But other than that, we were there for the last few days, 24 mm-hmm. seven. And then we left to go and have showers and he had by that time he had calmed down yes and we went to have showers and we received a call from his lovely partner who was there with her son as well and she was not in the room but she just heard this breath and she came in and he had passed away and unfortunately i can't imagine her having to make that call to us what an awful thing to have to do given we literally left 20 minutes before mm-hmm. she told us that he'd passed away and we kind of as would be expected lost it yeah and came back to his where he was and in her house immediately and sat with him and held him we hadn't been able to hug him for a very long time because of the pain that it caused him and dad was a big hugger he Even was. over Skype, he would yell, big hug, and put his arms up. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. I always loved when I was little and, you know, not as tall as him. And he'd hug us with those awful polyester jumpers and you just couldn't breathe. And you just had like a big <laughs> mouthful of dad jumper and smell. And Well, not polyester, though. Or a polyester blend. They were a poly blend. They were poly wool. Poly wool blend. Mm. Mm. That old Bit scratchy. <laughs> Bit scratchy. Bit of a ex- free exfoliation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Not, not that you need exfoliating at eight years old, but anyway. Look, the beauty industry might just disagree with you on that one. <laughs> if they can make money out of it, eight-year-olds should be exfoliating. That's a different podcast for another day, friends. Um, <laughs> so we got to hug him and hold his hand. and I played Lullaby by Billy Joel with him while I sat with him. We sat with he him. He was still warm. And it was peaceful. Was. It was very peaceful. He was he calm. Looked, he looked peaceful and it wasn't scary. No. And it wasn't devastating. We knew it was coming, but it was just, it's a very transformative experience to see someone you love is gone. But he wasn't. I kept saying that. It still feels like him. A lot of people I've heard say, you know, they died and, you know, he stopped breathing and it just, he, you could just tell it wasn't him. It was still him. You he know? was still warm when yeah. we got there. We held his hand. He was still very warm. 
and his chest was warm mm. so I laid my head on his chest and I gave him a hug and yeah. cried and it was very gave him a kiss. it was very it was a good release I guess because I don't know the fact that I wasn't with him when he died was very upsetting to me I always wanted to be there with him when dad died even like we used to talk a bit morose but as a child I was quite a morose child and I would talk to dad about you know what are you how are you going to die dad what when are you going to die like how old are you going to be and we'd have conversations about death and you know he would always talk about how um he wanted us to look after him mm-hmm. when, he, when he was old and you're gray. gonna have to wipe my bum <laughs> <laughs> and, okay dad yeah and we would we would say yeah we will do that for you and we did you know but Having those couple of hours before he was taken to the funeral home really meant a lot to me. Like me I, I got too. to say goodbye, even though he'd already gone. I got to say goodbye. I got to hug him, like give him a real hug. Yeah. Um, one I hadn't got from him since October 2018. Yeah. Um, the last time I saw him when he was in Australia. And, you know, that meant a lot to me to say goodbye yeah. and have those moments with him and to hold his hand and... Just talk to him. Talk to him and say how much I love him. And we sat around and we laughed. We did. That sounds really nuts, but we, you know, still told funny stories. Yeah, as a group, we sat around and we talked about him and laughed. It was cathartic and Mm -hmm. it was sad and it's that roller coaster. Unless you've been on it, you can't, people will be like, how could you laugh sitting in a room with your dead dad? But it, it just was peaceful and it was respectful Mm -hmm. and it was calm and it was loving and we were all supporting each other and it was kind of like it's us now you know we've all got to take care of each other now this has all been the build-up to him and making him comfortable and making him his last days happy and now we're allowed to have this release of this anticipation of him dying yeah it's been two and a half years of this life being on pause mm-hmm. and just and because it's not about you it's no. about him yeah and so you can't lean into what you know and you just know it's coming it's going to hurt it's going to suck it's going to be heartbreaking it's going to be devastating but you can't go there yet yeah you know so as peaceful as that was in the couple of days after sarah and i really struggled it wasn't that day it was the following day I remember you came into my room and I was just a wreck Mm -hmm. that whole morning because those images of the pain that he was in just kept coming back and locking eyes with me and begging through what however he whatever it took for him to communicate he was drawing on all of his literal last strength yes and dad and I had had conversations back in April when he was, you know, very lucid and we talked about all this stuff before, you know, the right to die and euthanasia and that kind of thing. And he'd said many times prior to April, but particularly in April, that once it got to the point where he was in so much pain that he had no quality of life, where he had no autonomy, where he couldn't go to the bathroom by himself, he didn't want to be here anymore. Yeah. Not now, not in April, but that he wanted to have the right to pick a time probably a couple of days before he died where he got to say everything he wanted to say where he went into a semi-conscious state and just before that point he wouldn't want to be here anymore Mm -hmm. and having now walked through that process with somebody even if it's only 72 hours there'll be a lot of people saying well they're going to die and it's 72 hours and unless you witness it and how unnecessary it is for someone who would elect not to do it 
do you have to do it? Mm -hmm. I just kept saying to Sarah, to the hospice staff, to everyone, this doesn't make any sense. It just isn't right. It isn't right. It isn't. And I think dad had already made his peace. He wanted to go and he was over it. He hated that he was still alive three days after he wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And if he'd had the choice, I think he would have chosen to go the the day that he was not responsive anymore Mm -hmm. instead of the three days that we waited waited it out yeah and he was in pain from his sores and then in pain from having to be cleaned and like a body that wasn't working anymore that had no function and he said to his partner and i on the first morning when he had when we had the pads and everything and he was panicking trying to get out of bed to go to the bathroom And he was so frustrated and sad and he just said, nothing's working anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And having known what his beliefs were and what he would have wanted, it broke my heart that this intellectual titan, this fiercely independent world traveling, like dad wanted to do something, he did it. Mm -hmm. Not callously, not to hurt other people, but he would find a way. He wanted to do something. He started businesses. He traveled the world. He met amazing people. He did everything he wanted to do. He was so fiercely independent. To see him be so devastated by his loss of autonomy and knowing that it was only he was just going to have to lie there and wait and feel his dignity just slip away was wrong. And it is wrong. And I know this subject is maybe going to upset people or, you know, I welcome, as always, discourse, disagreement. I know that there's a lot of reasons why this can be incredibly inflammatory. And I just want to be really clear. There's a lot of different uh, definitions of euthanasia and different interpretations. And that's why I want to be really, really clear that in terms of what we're talking about, there's a few different types of euthanasia. There's euthanasia, which is a doctor is allowed by law to end a person's life by a painless means as long as the patient and their family agree. And then there's assisted suicide, which is a doctor assists a patient to commit suicide if they request it. And then voluntary and involuntary euthanasia. Voluntary being the one that we're talking about, which is when euthanasia is conducted with consent. Voluntary euthanasia is currently legal in Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and the states of Oregon and Washington in the US. So to be clear, that is what we're talking about when we talk about euthanasia in the context of our father. Uh, I don't claim to be an expert on euthanasia. It's not something that I have any specialist knowledge in. I do follow, obviously, campaigns, the fact that, you know, they're thinking about uh, or they have so implemented in, it in Victoria. So um, they have passed a law in Victoria recently in um, Australia um, legalising um, euthanasia, mm-hmm. voluntary uh, euthanasia. But New South Wales, there is still campaign work to do. Yeah. Um, it's not been legalized there. Yeah. And like I said, given the conversations I've had with dad, the research that I've now done in terms of uh, euthanasia and how it is has been implemented and is now used in the regions where it is legal, it doesn't make any sense to me, particularly, you know, the highest rates of uh, use of euthanasia are things like chronic illness and particularly cancer. Yes. Terminal cancer diagnoses. And having witnessed it now... The fact that we make anybody go through this process when we allow them to pay taxes 
we allow them to have autonomy and independence in every other area of their life, but in terms of retaining their dignity and their mm-hmm. autonomy and their control, you are never more out of control than when you have cancer. That's correct. And never more out of control. We also, we also need to take into consideration that the last week of a terminal cancer patient's life is the most painful yes. out of their entire experience with cancer. He had no hips left. They were just tumours. That's correct, yes. That's how... And also the fact he was in hospice and we were administering his medication. Medication mm-hmm. Every two hours I was getting up and I was putting morphine into his mouth when he could no longer swallow his four milligram Dilaudid pills. Mm-hmm. I'm not a doctor. No. I'm not a nurse. We had nurses visit a couple of times a week, which great, but that I didn't realize. I did not realize that. And we, you know, went stuck to the dosage and we stuck to the time period that we were meant to admit, meant to administer. But in terms of mitigating the pain that he went through in that final hour of his life, I didn't know that he probably could have had how much more morphine so that mm-hmm. he didn't feel that pain. Nobody told me. Yeah. The nurse aide couldn't because she wasn't qualified. That's correct. So if we're not going to treat people properly and we're also not going to assist them in having an end to their life that is dignified and within their control mm-hmm. and something which is in line with how they lived, then we're, there's a big gap there. Absolutely. Where is this end of life care which is in line with what we do for animals. That's correct. I mean, we are not medical professionals. No. We do not understand dosage. Mm-hmm. I mean, we followed the dosage on the prescription. Yeah. But the thing is, he was still in pain and he was still in agony in that final hour. Until he wasn't anymore. And that's the thing. We thought we were doing what needed to be done mm-hmm. to make sure that he was okay, but he was still suffering. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is not fair. It's immoral. It is. We talk about sort of the moral nature of euthanasia. Go and spend a week like we did. Yes. And tell me what's moral about that. And, you know, I never really had any strong feelings about euthanasia until I saw what happened to my dad. Mm -hmm. And now I understand the importance of it. I Mm -hmm. really do. More than anything, I, I just think that it is the kindest thing that someone can do for their loved one and for their loved one to choose that for themselves. Yeah. There was a, a, a piece of research from a highly respected um, outlet, which is the, oh, do I have it? The Journal of the American Medical Association is a peer-reviewed medical journal published 48 times a year by the American Medical Association and publishes original research reviews and editorials covering all aspects of biomedicine. And they did a paper, which you know I'll try to make available on a couple of, especially the SoundCloud page if I can, um, talking about uh, some of the research they've done in the regions where euthanasia is legal. It says, interestingly, the same paper noted that US data shows that pain is not the main motivation for physician-assisted suicide. The dominant motives are loss of autonomy and dignity and being less able to enjoy life's activities. Mm -hmm. The authors said that in officially reported Belgian cases, pain was the reason for euthanasia in about half of cases. Loss of dignity is mentioned as a reason for 61% of cases in the Netherlands and 52% in Belgium. Mm -hmm. So that's incredibly consistent. Yes. Across, you know, different areas and particularly with what we've just witnessed. Absolutely. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear what you guys have experienced. I know across all my different platforms, I have received the most incredible feedback. I'd just like to do a quick thank you 
from myself, from Sarah, from our family, from yeah. people who love dad for the enormous outpouring of love and support in the last week. Mm-hmm. And particularly from those people who have been through this and have survived it. Yes. Because that's the most valuable thing to know is that as devastated, as grief stricken as you are, that you will continue on. And as Sarah said earlier, we were so lucky to have a dad who would be furious mm-hmm. if we didn't go on to change the world and do great things and see amazing things that he saw and eat all the amazing, like I said to Sarah, we're just going to be traveling and eating for the rest of our lives to commemorate dad because that they were his favorite things. He <laughs> loved food. Loved food. That was something that dad and I definitely bonded over was our love <laughs> for food. So, yeah, I just know that he wanted us to live big lives and to enjoy our lives Mm -hmm. and do amazing things. And so that's what we have to do now. And purposeful. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, we were sitting around and having witnessed that and gone through what we did that day. It was kind of, you know, what can we do to make this purposeful? What would dad do? What would dad be proud of? And he would be proud if we took what he went through and what we went through and made change and at least started a conversation. Like I said, you can disagree. You can have a totally different experience, a totally different insight. Always welcome that. Always want to hear the reasons for that. We are in the process of educating ourselves on this subject. I have an, as an, enough of an education to understand the role of euthanasia. But now in this personal context, you know, it's just ignited something which is I think an important thing to talk about. I don't want any other families to have to go through what dad and we went through that day. So unnecessary. It it shouldn't happen. People should have that dignity. People should have the right to go quietly and calmly. Peacefully. So Sarah, what do you think dad would want us to take away from this situation, what we've just been through? I think that dad was big on making changes based on your lived experience. If there was something um, negative that he ever experienced he would always talk to, talk about wanting to change things wanting to make a difference in the world mm. and after this experience I think it would be um, important to honor his memory yeah by making sure that other people don't experience what we did and having the choice yeah. to either see it all the way through to the very end or to have a choice a different choice that's right there's two choices there mm-hmm. we're not just saying euthanasia for everyone <laughs> it's just for those who are lucid enough and compass enough and aware enough and educated enough to be able to have that option and i think dad really wanted to go three days earlier he did he told us he did he did See he ya. said he said on the monday no it was on the monday or the tuesday he said two days would be good three days would be bad yes so he wanted to go as soon as he could yeah i agree yeah i think dad was all about turning you know something negative into something purposeful and positive Absolutely, and mitigating yeah. pain for other people mm-hmm. and making change and i think he just also want us to honor him by doing cool stuff yeah that was dad's favorite thing was doing cool stuff yeah, doing about really cool, cool really stuff. cool stuff you were doing really cool stuff like when we asked him dad what do you want us to do with your ashes because he wanted to be cremated and right up until the end he like did these he always used to do these spirit fingers and he'd go he just went everywhere 
which he'd said before, I want you to take me all over the world. I yeah. want to go everywhere. And I said, well, I can take you to Lord Howe Island. I'm going there in December. So what do you reckon? <laughs> we also said to him, and who's paying for this, Dad? That's right. Because we, I kept saying to him, you got champagne taste on a beer budget. Who's who's paying for these round-the-world tickets to sort of <laughs> make sure you end up everywhere? It's mm-hmm. going to be us. But, yeah, I really think that he would want us to take care of ourselves and each other yeah. and to live exciting, big, brave lives. Mm-hmm. And that's how he lived, unapologetically and in a huge and game-changing way. Absolutely. And I have every intention of doing that and taking him along with me yeah me yeah. too wherever we'll do some i go of that cool stuff together mm-hmm. yeah go to scotland next year that's it there yeah. you go dad another location <laughs> <laughs> so sarah i'm really proud of you i'm proud of you i'm so lucky that we had each other through this process and obviously max who's been here for the last couple of weeks as well and our brothers who have been so supportive and of course dad's beautiful partner mm-hmm. who made his life so wonderful and yep was a fabulous carer for him too absolutely um and just everyone who supported us Mm -hmm. we appreciate it so much yeah friends back home as well who were really lovely everyone's been phenomenal Mm -hmm. so that's it for the first podcast yay first First episode done it's gonna be a bit of a long one if anyone who's still here cheers um thanks for listening yeah even though i'm sick (laughs) sorry (laughs) what a sign off (laughs) So, guys, thank you so much for joining me for the very first episode back. Can't wait to see you next week for our next episode. Make sure that you're following over on What Mia Did Next on Instagram so that you're up to date on when episodes are coming out. You can find me over on Spotify, on iTunes. Make sure to give a review, a little five star. It would be lovely. Uh, if it's a one star, I understand. but uh... a bit hurtful, but anyway. <laughs> But autonomy, that's what this episode's been all about. You can do what you want, you know. I'm not your real dad. (laughs) No judgment. Bit of judgment. Uh, Anyway, guys, thank you so much. Cannot wait to start sharing more with you on this format. So happy to be back uh, on the podcast with much better sound quality, I hope. So, guys, thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Much love. Take care. Nice. Well done. I don't know if I did, bro.